This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Philip Lance, and today I'm interviewing Annie Reiner about her book, W.R. Beyond's Theories of Mind, A Contemporary Introduction, published by Rutledge in 2023, which is begins next month. <laughs> so it's very current book. And so this book, here's a little copy of it. It's it's a little book, and she'll tell you about maybe why it's little. And um, I think it'll be a good book for both for people, sort of psychodynamic clinicians who sort of vaguely know about Beyond, but would like to sort of learn more about him. Um, but I think also for people who maybe know a lot about Beyond, who are interested in different ways of reading him and understanding him. Um, and this, uh, because I think um, Dr. Reiner has some um, sort of new ways of thinking about beyond um, that uh, are presented in this book. So um, let me introduce you to her. Annie Reiner is a senior faculty member and training analyst at the Psychoanalytic Center of California in Los Angeles. Her work was greatly influenced by Wilfred Bion, with whom she studied in the 1970s. She lectures throughout the world, is published in numerous journals and anthologies, and is the author of two psychoanalytic books, um, including a book called Beyond and Being, Passion and the Creative Mind. She also edited the Festschrift um, titled Things Invisible to Mortal Sight, celebrating the work of James Grotstein. Dr. Reiner is also a poet, painter, and fiction writer, the author of a book of short stories, four books of poems, and six children's books, which she also illustrated. She has a psychoanalytic practice in Beverly Hills. So welcome to the program, Dr. Reiner. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And so we usually begin um, by just kind of asking, why why did you write this book? Um, for a rather different reason than I usually write a book, which is generally that I'm interested in, in saying something. 
Um, but I was approached by two psychologists in Tel Aviv who were doing a series of short books. This is why it's a small book. Uh, and each one in the series, it, it's called, I think, and it was for Rutledge, uh, called Rutledge Introductions to Contemporary Psychoanalysis. Um, so each book in the series focuses on one important contemporary psychoanalytic figure. And so they asked me to, to do a, one on Bian. So I've written about Bian's work uh, before quite a bit. And oh, by the way, yes, this book is already out. So it's not till in 2023, it's, it's been out for a, a month. Um, so, um, yeah, so I didn't really, I said yes, that I would do it and was honored to do it. Um, but then I began to worry that uh, I didn't want to cover the same ground I had al already covered about Bean's work or to cover the ground that he had covered much better than I could. Um, but I was pleasantly surprised when I got into it that um, I, to, to have some new ideas and uh, a new understanding of Bean's work. His work is very deep, and so it does lend itself to continued learning about the same sort of things. Um, anyway, and it reminded me of uh, a writer once said, and now I can't remember the writer who said it, but a lot of writers had said the same thing as this person who basically said, I write not to express what I think, but to find out what I think. And so if you're writing in a way that is, is alive for you and, you know, in a position to explore or learn something, then, uh, you know, you find things that you didn't know you were thinking about. And that's what happened with this book. And since, as you mentioned, there's been other books, biographies about Beyond or books about his work, what makes yours difference besides being... Um, sort of a briefer look at him. Is there anything that stands out for you that makes yours sort of peculiar or unique? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> some would find it very peculiar, <laughs> but and I'll get into that. But it's interesting you because I'm going to read you shameless, uh, you know, shamelessly uh, selling the book, but um, one of the endorsements was by Thomas Ogden, who is a very good writer himself, psych, uh, and a psychoanalyst in the um, in Northern California, um, and so what he said at the beginning of his endorsement was, "There are many books on BN. This one is different." So right there, <laughs> and he's saying that it captures what is revolutionary about BN's uh, uh, theories. So yes, so it, I think it is a little different. For me, the thing that I started to learn and to look at and what is different um, than a lot of how Bean's work is seen is that I started, I began to be, I had always had this thought, but it took center stage. The thought that really all of his very complex theories are related to each other or they grow out of each other or they are necessary to each other. So the reason I say people might find this peculiar is that, um, you know, Bean's work is often divided 
into two periods, and they, they call it Bean's uh, early period, which has to do with his early ideas about groups, his early ideas about um, um, uh, theories of thinking, and then Bean's late period, which is very much about a concept that uh, is very much more mysterious that he called, represented by the letter O. And O represents, and, you know, we're going to get into this later, and I'll probably bring it up in, you know, several times before we really get into it. Um, so people should be patient because it's a very complex idea because it, it O represents uh, what he calls absolute truth, the infinite. So something that our minds uh, definitely embody but can never really completely understand. So O is an unknown, unknowable idea. So, you know, when I write, wrote the first book about man, or maybe both earlier books, um, you know, I did begin to think, okay, why am I writing about trying to define something that is ultimately indefinable. So it seemed like a kind of stupid thing to do, but it is a very, very interesting idea that he had that, as I say, is part of his later work. So when people separate the later work from, the, from his theoretical ideas about thinking, um, it's... It's often with the idea that O is just, he went off the rails with O. And a lot of people believe this. And a lot of, you know, Bean was from uh, England and he was the head of the Institute in London and very well respected and admired and seemed to be a genius by his colleagues. And then he moved to Los Angeles and that co coincided with the late period of Bean's ideas. And so the people who were sort of left behind, they don't even, they don't give any credence to O. And so my idea here that they are very much, that there is a continuity between his early and late work, um, that's why it would be new. Because a lot of think that they're it's so different that um, you know they have nothing to do with each other so what one more thing so it's been some people have thought that because I talk about this continuity that I'm somehow not understanding that oh that oh was revolutionary and a lot of people do see it as a revolutionary psychoanalytic concept it brings a sort of spiritual, mystical, metaphysical idea to psychoanalysis. Um, but it's not that I don't see how revolutionary it is. It's that I think it misses the point that even his earlier ideas were extremely revolutionary, but they needed another concept to make it comprehensible. Uh, okay. Yeah, so you kind of, you take, you start with O, which was sort of near the latter part of his career, and reflect back on the earlier part of his career in writings through the lens of O, and it seems to sort of illuminate and make 
make everything make more sense in some ways. Very, maybe. very much so. One, I'll give you one example, which I did, uh, I think I said in the introduction to the book. Um, at In the 70s, I was very young, very green as a therapist, um, but I had contact with Bean and his, his lectures all the time and was very interested. So I contacted him. In those days, you would write him a letter. And so I wrote him a letter saying, would he be willing to do a private clinical uh, seminar with six, me and five colleagues, um, you know, psychotherapists and um, young, uh, uh, you know, uh, psychoanalytic uh, candidates. And so he did agree, he agreed to meet with me to discuss this. So I go to his office and I will say one of the things, my, my approach to being very much has to do with who I felt he was in meeting him. And so it's not intellectual. It's the sense that I could feel something different in me in relation to him. And what that was is someone who was so open that even though I was very shy, didn't trust what I knew, I wasn't afraid to talk to him. So in the middle of the meeting, I said to, I noticed one of his books on the shelf, a book called Attention and Interpretation from his later years, so 1970. And um, I said to him, I love that book. It's my favorite of your books. And I've already read it three times. And he looked at me and he said, I think I'm saying the same thing in all my books. And so I took that later, much later now, as some sort of proof that, because he wouldn't say that idly, as some sort of idea that he's always been talking about the same thing, but yeah, one has to develop a way to say it, especially when it's dealing with the mind, which is inherently mysterious. Uh-huh. You know, the idea that O is some kind of um, weird, bizarre thing, to me never made, when I've heard people criticize it that kind of way, made sense because there are philosophical ideas. Lacan has the idea of the real, which is this sort of unsymbolizable place or thing, dimension. Um, Immanuel Kant has, I think it's the, the noumenal, there's the noumenal and the phenomenal, and we can only know the phenomenal, we can never n- really know the noumenal, um, my uh, amateur version of understanding Kant. Um, and then there's just the idea of the unconscious in general, which is that there's, the unconscious is what we can't know, Um Really, we can sort of, you know, find derivatives of the unconscious that we can say something about, but it's always unknowable. So it seems to me that O isn't that uh, sort of novel. I I don't know if there's people who've kind of set these concepts side by side and sort of compared them, um, but they're all kind of in the same realm, it seems to me. I completely agree. So... What's re- why is it revolutionary then? Why do people talk about it like it, he's crazy? Um, I think because he was trying to, okay, so O is seen to be, and Bian talks about it as mystical. 
So yes, all of these people that you're talking about had the same idea. We can also say, and this is why my earlier book, um, Being and Being, uh, Passion and the Creative Mind, was using a lot of artists as examples of O. Because O, even, even Freud said, writers are much more familiar with what we call the unconscious than analysts are. So, you know, um, whether it's writers, painters, uh, scientists, this idea of O, of something unknown, unknowable, mystical, is very much the, you know, the way things uh, go. And so why did Bian take such flack for it? I mean, one of the reasons is they took, you know, it's a buzzword, mystical, because it, it, it evokes things like uh, religion. Well, it does evoke religion. But Bian was describing it in a very different way than um, sort of religious dogma. And so psychoanalysts, though, yes, and it was exactly what Freud was saying about the unconscious, except Bian brought a different level of understanding to it. And so the minute you're changing anything or deepening it, that's a change too. People get nervous. So people saw this idea of mystical as antithetical to scientific. Um, and yet, I'm going to read you something, if I can find it, that, that Bian said um, just about this. You know, people said, oh, he's, you know, some people said, oh, he's not really talking about mysticism. But yes, he is. It's just you have to know how he's defining it. So he writes this. I shall use the term mystic to describe these exceptional individuals. I include scientists, and Newton is the outstanding example of such a man. His mystical religious preoccupations have been dismissed as an aberration when they should be considered as the matrix from which his mathematical formulations evolved. So, you know, and of course, uh, uh, Einstein is another perfect example. You know, he, he, um, he was known for being religious, but he wasn't talking about religious dogma or organized religion. So he made that famous statement, uh, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. So it's where the two, you know, cohere that we're talking about, that being talking about. So yeah, it, it, it takes a lot of flack for reasons that are not completely understandable. Okay. And probably some of our listeners are kind of wondering, well, so how does this concept uh, get used in clinical practice or what difference does it make? Which I think we're going to get into in subsequent questions. But kind of starting to work through the book a little bit with, I think it's the first chapter, Limitations of Language in the Psychic Realm. So since I'm somebody who likes to read from different psychoanalytic schools, the, as soon as I saw that title about language and psychoanalysis, what what first came to mind was I know Lacan focuses a lot on language um, based on sort of structural linguistics. Um, Freud talked about language. Um in the sense of there's like his concepts of word presentations and thing presentations. 
um, representations that are repressed have to do with language. So I was kind of expecting we we're going to be in that realm, but it seems like your emphasis in this chapter is more on Beyond's um, sort of how language is used clinically to make an impact on on the patient. So it was more of a clinical discussion than a sort of a philosophical or theoretical discussion about language. Yeah, I would say definitely uh, it's true that Bean's, um these ideas about language are related to clinical work. Um, but I don't think we can totally eliminate philosophical issues about language from Bean's ideas. So basically he's talking about the idea, you know, if we think about it, why is language so important? Well, this is the main, um, the main uh, um, central. Language is central to psychoanalysis, where we mainly use verbal communication in psychoanalysis. So the ways in which we understand how we communicate become very important. So Bean talks, you know, basically says we all know how to talk everybody and we certainly talk a lot you know all you have to do is listen to all these news shows and people can talk you know ad infinitum um are they are they always saying something maybe not that in a way that can be um used psychoanalytically so we assume though because we can talk that we're good at communication and it's just not always the case um especially if you're dealing with um, the mind, which is metaphysical. So language, Bean makes the point, language is created to deal with physical realities. And it's very good at that. You know, if you say, um, <laughs> I, use, I use the example of uh, Mel Brooks, who's a, co- a com- comedian and filmmaker, but he had a character called the 2,000-year-old man, and he was asked, what was the first language that you spoke in, you know, in the caveman days? And he said, uh, and this was all ad-lib, and he said, uh, rock talk. You know, he said, uh, what, are you, what are you doing with that rock? Don't throw that rock at me. Put down that rock. That's, that's phys- language based on physical reality. So we understand totally what that means. Don't throw the rock at me. When it comes to the mind, feelings, thoughts are not visible. They're not audible. They're not uh, of the senses. They're, They're metaphysical. And so while we can see evidence of feelings, we can't see the feelings themselves. And this is why it's, this is why it's a little complicated. So being in one of these seminars I mentioned, someone presents a case, people discuss it, people have their ideas, and Bean then looked at us and he said, um, what language is this patient speaking? None of us knew what he was talking about. It doesn't really mean anything. How can you say what language they're speaking? But what it made us do is it made us think about the obvious and to try to think in a way that was not logical, that was emotional. And um, so that's this idea. Um, yeah, now I'm not a, 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 um, uh, an expert on Lacan, 
but he did make one distinction that I have read about where he talks about the difference between um, empty speech and full speech. So someone can be speaking and it feels empty. Or we might even feel with a patient, I don't feel there's anyone here talking to me. That has to do with what kind of language they're speaking. And so we have to pay attention to these very sort of more subtle uh, things if we're going to contact a part of the person that actually can be present. Yeah, I'm not an expert on Lacan either, but and there, but he did talk a lot about speech and language. Um, it's interesting, the comparisons there. And, and he had an idea that there's declarative speech and then there's enunciation. So declarative speech is like, the literal content of what the let's say the patient says and the enunciation is everything that slips in that changes the content the tone of voice the um peculiar private definitions that the person might be using um so that there's there's something else coming through that goes way beyond the literal words um so I can hear that in Beyond's what language is this patient speaking yes. to be listening? Yeah. Listening. For and that. I think, you know, we can't separate, not only do I think we can't separate Beyond's early and late ideas, we can't separate the ideas of these very different cl clinicians from each other. Because, you know, one of the things Beyond once said that made a big impact on me, he said, you know, it's not about finding some new, uh, theory in psychoanalysis. We each have to find our own language to talk about what we already know. So, you know, Lacan is using his language, Bian is using his language to talk about what's probably a very similar thing. And, and I think Lacan also said something about um, that the analysts had to not get caught up in um, speech that is of the here and now. So that patients are often coming in and they want to tell you all the things they did. And, you know, we call it free association. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's just nonsense, you know, but the point being that, that Lacan makes, we have to pay attention. We have to notice whether they're caught up in something that is not really about communicating with themselves or with us. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, people are, will probably be surprised how many concepts are circulating in contemporary psychoanalysis that, that come from beyond. Um, and so like some examples, people probably know about alpha or beta elements, um, alpha function, container and contained, um, maybe lesser known L, H, and K, which stand for love, hate, and knowledge, um, beyond the idea of thoughts without a thinker and then of course oh which we're talking about but all those sort of concepts have sort of filtered into a lot of psychoanalytic discussion and discourse today amongst clinicians um another one of those is this idea of the selected fact and you so you have a chapter on the selected fact um and so i'm i'm interested in hearing hearing your ideas about what is the selected fact um because def depending on what school of psychoanalysis you're coming from, you might be listening for different, li listening differently for and come up with different selected facts. But 
What did Beyond mean by it? Um, okay, so this is, it's a very interesting, um, it's a clinical theory. So it has to do with how do we listen to all the things we listen to in the patient and experience all the feelings we have, all of it, and find the relevant fact, which he's calling the selected fact. So, but I'm going to say one thing about what you just um, said. Um, you know, you said uh, that analysts may be trained to hear certain things. And, okay, this very much gets at the point of O, that O means um, letting go of everything you know. You know, the, the road to O, the royal road to O is suspend memory, the things you already know, desire, the things you hope will happen in the future at some point, uh, and suspend your knowledge. So, see, if, I guess Bian would say, if you're already thinking, you know, in your own orientation of what you have already learned, then you've already lost the thread. So that we need, in other words, we need, we shouldn't be listening for anything at all, at least nothing in particular. And that's, that's basically, oh, that you need to put yourself in this state of mind of not knowing, you know, talk about mystics. There was a mystic, I think he was in the 12th century. Um, he wrote a book, although it's anonymous, so we don't know who he is, but uh, a monk uh, who wrote a book called The Cloud of Unknowing. And that's what O is. You need to put yourself in this state of unknowing so that something, something, whatever pattern is in the material will be able to be visible to you. Now, this is the same Freud was saying. You know, he said, evenly hovering attention. Don't pay any attention. Now, did he always do that? I don't think so. Because he was very determined to talk about his sexual theories and whatever else. Um, so did he do it? No. And that's why Bean comes along and says, no, we really have to do this. This is what it is. You have to put yourself in this state of evenly hovering uh, attention where you're not listening to anything in particular. So um, Bean describes it as a waking dream state. Um, so, okay, see, here's, here's one of the ways in which the early ideas link up with the late. Selected fact he talks about in 1962. And he, he borrows the term from a mathematician who's, you know, basically talking about how do we find the relevant thing in a formula so that we're not worrying about all the rest, which are irrelevant. Um, so he talks about it then, and he says, it's very, okay, let me, let me see if I can find, um, um, okay, so the selected fact basically uh, addresses the analyst's a very big challenge of how to make sense of this overwhelming amount of stimuli that we hear in a session and find that relevant fact. Um in all the things, in the words, in the feelings, the association, the body language, the, the dreams, you know, your own thoughts and reflections, um, everything in the session, how to find the relevant fact. And according to Bian, that 
will unlock the meaning of the session. And so everything will cohere around the selected fact. And if you go through it, you know, maybe later when you have time, uh, then you'll see everything then connects. So here's what Bian said. He said, the only facts worthy of our attention are those which introduce order into this complexity and so make it accessible to us. Okay, but that's a bit, that's a tall order. How do you, how do you find that? And so, again, how it relates to the later ideas, it relates to O. See, he doesn't mention O because he never thought of O yet. But if one is not in that state of mind of O, of suspending memory, desire, and understanding, this cloud of unknowing, you can't do it. You can't find that relevant fact. So, see, you need it if you're going to to follow his earlier ideas. You're going to need this concept. Yeah, that's a very good um, case you're making for how the concept of O can be reflected back on earlier concepts and and shows how how they fit together very well. Yeah. See, he didn't he didn't need he didn't know about that. And yet, did he know about it? You know, I'm going to give you another example. Thoughts without a thinker. So I would say O was Bian's, in that case, was Bian's thought without a thinker. See, the idea of thoughts without a thinker is the truth does not need us to think it. It still is going to be true. Whatever, whatever you know, realities and truths there are in the universe they're true whether or not our puny little minds can think about them. I mean, again, go back to Einstein, E equals MC squared. That's in the universe, you know, that matter and energy are equivalent or, you know, transform each other, constantly transforming. So that existed, but it took, so that was uh, Einstein's thought without a thinker that finally found someone to think it in Einstein. So O finally found Bean to think it, but he couldn't think it earlier, even though he, he conceptualized this idea how to, that we're going to need to find the essential fact. Okay, so let's kind of imagine a clinician who's trying to work, um, I guess as you do, with very much um, oriented around the concept of O. The clinician's going to be um, in this I, did you call it a cloud of unknowing, really refraining from trying to interpret or know anything until a selected fact begins to emerge and bring some order to this unknowingness? And then the clinician is going, what, it, it almost seems like kind of an oracular, sort of the clinician begins to uh, speak a truth that's emerging in in this session, uh, is, is that kind of what it looks like, how it works? Yes, it's that something suddenly, see, my experience, you know, and I've been doing this a very long time. I'll, I'll give one more way to think about it because Bean talks about, oh, as a waking dream state. So we're not asleep. We're not in a trance where we don't know where we are or don't, you know, we're not asleep, but we're not awake. So, in other words, it's not an ego function of memory, 
and desire and all of this. It's not in time. It's so again, it's a fulfillment of everything Freud was talking about, about the unconscious. It's just that we're clueless about how to do it. So this state of mind, this, you know, Freud says, uh, dreams are the royal road to the unconscious for the patient, you know, the patient's dreams. But it's also for the analyst. The analyst has to be dreaming too. And so if one, you know, Bean says it's a very, the difference between being awake and asleep, he says it's very, it's a very small, narrow line. Um, but yes, so out of that sort of dream state, something will come through that's like, oh, I, and I don't mean oh, <laughs> as concept, but, you know, um, now I get it, you know, it's like, it, oh, it makes sense now because I didn't hear that before, but this is what the person's talking about. And then you go back in your mind over, you know, does that really fit? or not. Okay, so we have the analyst in a state of O, and then as I understand it, then there's a transformation that begins to happen where the analyst, uh, or the, I guess the patient, begins to bring in K, which is knowledge, which would be some kind of um, uh, beginning to verbally um, talk about some truths that are emerging. Is that is that correct, that that's how it happens? Yes, this is a two-prong uh, procedure. <clears throat> so, oh, you know, people, some analysts think that, um, that just being in contact with O oh is somehow enough. It's like saying that empathy is enough. And of course, empathy is extremely important, but Bean also saw the importance of making interpretations, that we have to help the patient to understand his or her unknown, you know, unconscious experiences and how they, the effects that they exert on, on someone's life. Um, since O is unknowable, um, how can it become something that we actually think about and communicate? to make an interpretation. So Bean called it transformation of O to K. So it's from the, this total mystery of the thing in itself, of this um, cloud of unknowing, um, to a capacity to abstract and think about what we've experienced. And um, so again, this too is an example of the continuity between the early theories of thinking, which have to do with um, with uh, uh, alpha function um, and um, and the later idea of O. Okay, so so this is where my critical mind says, well, so this transformation from O to K is kind of going to depend on what kind of training you've had, what kind of reading you done, you've done. For instance, in, in your clinical examples in the book, it seems like a lot of the interpretive moves you make with your patients are what we might call in the realm of object relations. They're about how your patients are relating to you or how they're relating to other people in their life. Um, 
I could see maybe another analyst maybe coming from a different school coming up with different kinds of K statements or interpretations that are, um, I don't know, about, I don't know, repressed um, affects or, or desire in the Lacanian school. Um, so does it, does it, would that be accurate that different analysts are going to have find different truths in, in oath? Well, first of all, we are talking about an extremely complex is not, see, talk about language, not adequate to describe how one person thinks about a patient, how another person does, because everyone's mind is different. So I don't know that it has to do, see, I would hope that it doesn't only have to do with orientations, things that we've learned, but what we've learned in our analysis. See, what we've learned about who we are. Bian would, would say, you know, don't read books, read people. And the first person you have to read is yourself. Because you're the, you know, that's the, um, that's the means by which you experience where the patient is at. So, yeah, you obviously, you know, being, it's not like he did everything whole cloth. As I say, these, it has precursors. So he definitely, it's not like Kleinian ideas are not in there because that's about um, very primitive states of mind of the infant. Freud wasn't even talking about the infant. He called it infantile life, but he was talking about a child of five years old. That's not what Klein was talking about or what Bian is talking about. The infant is an infant. And, um, you know, I guess the other thing is about O, um, you know, one of the things that Bian said is that one of the ways in which he distinguished uh, oh, this mystical thing from religion is he also he also talked about it or defined oh as um, the exceptional person, you know, so the mystic. He defined it also as the exceptional person or the genius. So right away, this is outside of religion. It brings it to a, a matter of how one's mind works. But I would say that the exceptional person is the infant, that the infant has this capacity. I won't say for O in the way that it's used psychoanalytically, because infants make very bad psychoanalysts. They can't do the job, not for lack of trying, because every infant tries to save his parent, you know, but, the, but it's that openness of mind. It's that dreaming mind which the infant can't help but have because it's got no experience uh, to organize anything else. But um, so in other words, that's where K comes in, is you, you have to also have um, psychoanalytic knowledge. You also have to have um, knowledge besides this intuition. Yeah, and I like how you said knowledge from your own analysis. Um, uh, and I also like how you brought this back to the infantile mind, um, part because you and I are both from the same institute that emphasizes these, quote, 
what they used to call primitive mental states or archaic, very early mental states, which sort of is really interesting. I hadn't thought of it this way before, but a way of taking us out of the adult ego way of thinking into another way of thinking um, that, that lies at the foundations of our, our very experience as a human being. Um, well, I wanted to ask uh, just sort of final questions. What's interesting you in terms of ongoing research and writing? Um, well, um, you know, I do want to give my mind a little break because I also, I wrote this book during the pandemic, but I also wrote a novel, which <clears throat> um, I have never done before. So it wasn't like I set out to write a novel, but you know, I think it was partly the the difficult times we've been living through with politically as well as, you know, the pandemic. Um, but what I, so what I found with this uh, novel that I wrote was it's pretty much, uh, it's characters and so it's fiction, but it's pretty much the, the ideas that I write about psychoanalytically, but a little more accessible and definitely funnier <laughs> and probably a little edgier. Um, so I do feel like I need to give my mind a little rest first. But the next thing I've been thinking about doing, um, and I've been thinking about this for years, and then later found out that Bian also had the thought of doing a, um, a book, a, po a book of poems specifically chosen for psychoanalysts. So being really, he loved poetry because it is from this dreaming mind, you know, basically it uses language in a different way. Um, and so, you know, I, I've been thinking that that I might, I might work on that next. Uh -huh. Wow. I'm so glad I asked you that question because that's two very intriguing future publications that really sound delightful. Um, well, thank you very much, Dr. Reiner, for sharing your time with us today. My pleasure. Uh, really nice to talk to you. I find that you have an open mind always. And so, you know, um, we all have a lot of questions and it's good to be able to think about them. Thank you. So for the listeners, you've been listening to an interview with Dr. Annie Reiner about her book, uh, W.R. Beyond's Theories of Mind, A Contemporary Introduction, here at the New Books and Psychoanalysis channel of the New Books Network. Uh, feel free to contact me at philipjlance at gmail.com to let me know your thoughts and questions about the show. Um, thanks for listening.